Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, of course, broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA, Inc. If I sound like I'm a little hoarse, that's because just about an hour or so ago, I was at a protest and, um, you know, uh, yelling very loudly and what have you as I participated in a protest to uh, protect the First Amendment. Um, For those that follow Black Talk Radio News, y'all know I have started incorporating local coverage into my broadcast uh, where I live about the things that's going on. Um, Really, it was nothing. The reason I haven't done it in the past is because it was no activity. There was no activism or, or anything of the sort going on in this county. You have to understand, I live in a rural county of North Carolina that's 80% white. Um, and probably only about eight, 8% black, if that. And so there's no activism and what have you. People just going to work, going to school, living their lives day to day. But like what happened around the world, um, our county was impacted by the murder of George Floyd. That kicked off protests in, in little towns inside the county that had never had protests, not even during the 60s. No no kind of marching, no kind of demonstrations. That just stuff was unheard of here in Gaston County. Um, I think the only people that really marched in Gaston County, and this was some years ago, and it was the Ku Klux Klan. But in terms of black people and, and their allies, uh, other non-white people standing up for their rights and and trying to uproot some of these symbols of, of institutional white supremacy. None of that was happening in Gaston County until George Floyd got murdered in, in 2020. And then it just touched off a flurry of protests and people just working to, in many different areas to dismantle um, white supremacy and systemic racism in their local governments. And, and, you know, that really the saying, all politics is local, really just came home to me uh, during 2020 as I met people I probably would have never met, probably passed them in, well, I don't go to the mall, but you know what I'm saying, probably passed them on the road, probably was in the same event that they had with to and, and would have never known them and, until you know, uh, people started to protest. And the fo- one of the focal points became, once again, because it wasn't the first time, although there weren't any protests, people were petitioning to have that Confederate monument removed from our courthouse, which is the case where, with almost every courthouse in North Carolina, but they have been falling. The Confederate statues and monuments to these racist white supremacist slavers have been falling. And these people here in the county that control the county in the government where I live, all white men where they just got a white woman. Um, they want to hold on to that symbol of white supremacy, even though we have descendants of, of Confederate soldiers who, who were drafted 
from this county coming out and saying that they don't that statue doesn't belong there. So um, that's why I'm sounding a little hoarse. But we are welcoming for the first time um, to the broadcast. We have author and activist Bernard Creamer Jr. And we're going to be discussing um, parts of his book, Who Stole the Soul? Uh, every time I read that title, I can't think of nothing but public public enemy in that hook. Who Stole the Soul? Soul. And um, the name of his book is Who Stole the Soul? The Weaponization of Hip Hop, a historical and sociological perspective. One reviewer, and you can find the book on Amazon, and we have linked it for you, but one reviewer said about the book, in this book, the author explores the degenerative effects of today's music on the community that gave it birth, as well as the capitalist entities that fuel and promote the music that is destroying our communities. It's a good read, recommended for hip-hop heads and historians. And, and as I stated, Bernard Creamer Jr. is an activist as well as an author. Uh, I believe he's also an educator. And, you know, he's part of a wider movement to rid the public radio airwaves of content that activists say violates the FCC, that's the Federal Communication Commission's guidelines on vulgar and obscene content. So if you have a question or a comment for um, Mr. Creamer today or myself, Give us a call, and that telephone number is 626-213-5779. And at this time, let's go ahead and and say welcome to Bernard Creamer, Jr. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yes, sir. Pleased to be here, man. I appreciate you having me on your uh, your platform to share this information. Well, I appreciate you putting the information together and bringing a spec a perspective on a topic that's it's not really popular. It's not a really a popular topic when you're talking black talk radio. And I'm not talking the platform, but I'm talking about the very few talk radio uh, shows we have. You don't hear Steve Harvey or any of the other people covering these type of topics. I, I don't know. I don't listen to those stations. Um, perhaps you have heard, you know, of them ha- having this as a subject, or maybe you've been a guest on, had they invited you on. Steve Harvey had you on to talk about, you know, uh, the weaponization of hip hop. Nah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't anticipate it either. Uh, Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey or his ilk. Um, for the most part, they're pretty much part of the same, uh, I guess you want to call it, they, they all work in the same corporate offices. And so it would pretty much be shooting himself in the foot to be denigrating any station or medium that uh, focuses, uh, you know, the sort of information that we're talking about that we're dealing with. Yeah, because, you know, when I was working um, a nine-to-five corporate job uh, before I became self-employed. And we would li- that's when I would listen to the radio, and that's where, you know, mostly millions of Americans listen to FM radio because once, you, you know, and that's kind of changing. But Steve mm-hmm. Harvey would be on those type of stations that's during the day, you know, playing that vulgar, you know, music. Yep. Yeah, so he, he doesn't really have a problem with that. And if he does, he can't say anything about it because that's a lot right. of money um, that's coming out of that. We're talking about uh, supply, demand, uh, and all of that business. We're talking about trying to get rid of the music. And it's not that we ever demanded it, but 
unfortunately, it's what's being supplied, and it's actually what they've contrived the demand for. So to pull it off of the radio or for him to try to denigrate that music right now would pretty much cost him his job. And so he would have to really, really be taking a real stand in order for him to say something against it. So I don't imagine that's going to happen because I don't really see Steve Harvey uh, being a black capitalist that he is, uh, putting holes in his own pockets. You know, he also he also puts himself out there. And this is not to say that he's not. You know, I think he has, has children. I know he has a stepdaughter and what have you, but he's put out his books and he's always got... Hey, hey, Bernard, I'm sorry, but we're hearing a lot of background noise on your end. If you watch that, you know, you do have on the earboard, uh, bud, so that might pick up everything, bro. We can hear everything. Sound like you're tinkling in the bathroom or something. Um, I was was by my fish tank. (laughs) But, um, you know, Steve Harvey, he's put out books and he carries himself as a God-fearing family man who most of the stuff he's involved with himself, the things that he hosts is mostly, you know, benign, fair, uh, family oriented. You know, he's a long mm-hmm. way from his days of stand up comedy. And, and then even then I didn't follow him in stand up comedy. And I don't know how clean or not his, his comedy was, but you don't expect, clean comedy, you know, in those nightclubs mm-hmm. and stuff. But, but I would suspect though, you know, it's because, People think that he's like a boss. We use that term a lot. He's a boss. But no, no, there's bigger bosses than him. And even though Steve Harvey might agree with us on this topic, you know, it's another matter <laughs> when your employers, the people you depend on to generate your cheddar cheese, is also putting out all this destructive content. Yeah, and in terms of his morals and his ethics or his code. Uh, we kind of saw that on display at the beginning of uh, Donald Trump's term, and I'm not going to get too political, but uh, he was one of the first uh, black men that was featured with Donald Trump, uh, claiming that you know black people were going to get something out of out of Donald Trump's uh, time in office. Uh, yeah. I've heard some secret deal that he made, but we're still waiting for the fruit of that deal that he made with uh, Donald Trump. So I'm yeah. not going to hold my breath waiting on that though. It, yeah, I, I don't think that that's go- going to happen. So let's let's get into the book first. The title, though, the title, man. I got to give you props on that title because I love the title. <laughs> you know, who stole the soul? The weaponization of hip hop, a historical and sociological perspective. What inspired the title, man? The song, uh, just like you said. I mean, that was one of your songs back in the day. That was one of my favorite songs, and. Public Enemy kind of just represents, like, they were right there when uh, things started to change, uh, when the paradigm shifted. Uh, Public Enemy being a multi-platinum Southern group, every album they had brought out was platinum Southern. And so for them to suddenly uh, disappear off the uh, radio waves, uh, to suddenly lack promotion, uh, to suddenly, you know, just lack any type of attention, um, in lieu of uh, Public Enemy, not Public Enemy, but NWA taking over, uh, Public Enemy is just that group that I think of in terms of conscious rap, in terms of music that was actually uplifting us, inspiring us, um, empowering us, uh, making us want to want to learn more, making us want to do better. Um, they're one of those groups, uh, definitely the main group, and that song was definitely one of my favorites. Most definitely. So it was just kind of, yeah, it was just kind of organic with how the title came about. And what it, what inspired this book? Is there? 
had you seen other uh, uh, authors try to tackle this subject, or did you see a subject that wasn't being tackled in literature and and through this together? What was your inspiration for writing this book? Uh, My initial inspiration was definitely uh, Dr. Lance Williams. I don't know if you're familiar, but he's out of Northeastern uh, University in Chicago. And he was actually dealing with the subject. uh, And he had a little presentation about the subject as well uh, back then. And I went to go check it out. He was my neighbor. We lived in the same building. So I went to check him out uh, at one of the presentations he did. I took some notes. And it was just something, you know, I never really paid that much attention to until I really you know, got deep into the subject. You know, once I watched this presentation, I went and did my own re- research. Um, I started reading the books and actually being an educator and being in the classrooms, like I can see the transformation that was going on with our kids over the last 20 years. Like you literally see it. And it's, it's almost like it, it lines up, like it's almost aligned with the change in the media or the, the substance or the, the topic of the, the music that they were listening to, uh, some of the same prevailing themes. And, you know, like we had the, we had high murders back in the 80s, but uh, with the high murders that are going on right now, it's like they're happening for different reasons. You know, back then, a lot of the murders were pretty much drug-related, but now um, a lot of our kids are just killing each other just to be killing each other, literally. Um, it doesn't even really take that much of a beef or that much of a real reason to kill each other. They're just killing each other. Um, I lost. I worked at a school uh, this past school year. I wasn't there more than a year, a couple of months, and I think we lost three kids. And had one kid that had actually murdered another kid. Um, when you talk to these kids, like they can, if you ask them, you know, what beef do you all have with each other? What beef did your group have with that group? They can never really answer. It's almost like they're under a spell. And so mm. that sort of thing kind of led me to tackling the subject and just being a lover of hip hop, period. I mean, that, that made me want to address it um, even more because uh, I was there when hip hop was invented. Um, I watched hip hop evolve and I watched it devolve as well. Right, and, and you kind of talk about that in different chapters of your book. Um, you you talk about the golden age of hip hop. Describe, you know, for the listeners, the golden. What what did you consider the golden age of hip hop? The golden age for me, um, predominantly the nineties, but the golden age for me in hip hop was pretty much where you had balance. You still you had you still had lyricists uh, where it mattered what you said. You know how you how lyrically inclined you were. Um, you couldn't just come to a microphone and just say whatever. Um, you had to be talented or you would not be recognized, you would not be acknowledged, or you would not be awarded. And so you had to have lyrics. Um, even if you were a, a gangster rapper, you still had to have lyrics. Um, the music had to be right, and there still had to be some semblance of a balance there. Like we had a balance. You know, we could listen to uh, N.W.A., but we could also listen to Brand Nubian. You know, we could listen to Public Enemy, but we could also listen to Scarface, too. And so we had that balance. And, I mean, that's pretty much what defined the golden age for me, I mean. But most importantly, you still had the, ma- the major themes of hip-hop. You had lyrics, and you still had – you didn't have DJs per se, but you had producers that were very talented. And most of the producers were former DJs. So hip-hop was still organic at that time. I mean, it was just now – it was just then starting to transform. Yeah, you had DJs, but they the DJs were in the club, you know, mm-hmm. Um that's where most of my exposure to new hip hop groups and new hip hop songs wasn't so much over the radio. Cause I was in the military. So I, you know, I wouldn't know what the local stations were. So everything I'm hearing, I'm hearing up in the club. Um, and mm-hmm. for the golden age for me, I would say, um, I know some old heads would say 
uh, and and I say old heads, but I'm probably I'm an old head now in hip hop. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. you know, but they would go back to the Sugar Hill Gang and Curtis Blow and and you know yes, that beginnings. I wouldn't call it the golden age, you know, but it was certainly the beginning, the classics, the foundations yes, were sir. were laid. Um, but I would say the golden age. Where would you put this time era? I would say when Public Enemy was out, but also you had groups like EPMD, Eric B, and Rock M. Um, mm-hmm. Pop was still alive at the time, but he might have been just coming out, or he might would have he might was with the Digital Underground at that time. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't know with that group. Um, um, Dark G. Yeah, before he went solo. And so what what era was that? What was that? The nineties, early nineties? Early nineties. Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. early nineties, uh to the late nineties. That was definitely considered the golden age for me. Yeah, it, it was um, mostly like oriented. You know, also, you know, we had um third base. I'm a third base mm-hmm. fan. Only real hip hop heads know who third base is. And <laughs> Yeah, I, and then I know a lot. Hammer get a lot of hate, but Hammer, you know what I'm saying was that was like clubbing music. That's dance music. You know what I'm saying. So, so I kind of like Hammer and the videos mm-hmm. coming out at that time. You know, it wasn't just it just wasn't so much about violence. You wasn't getting no scenes and no trap houses because they didn't call them mm-hmm. trap houses. Yeah, it was just a crack house, and that wasn't really being promoted. It was just people having fun. Focus on cars, on girls, and now mm-hmm. or culture. Now you talk about culture uh, in your book, and, and you listed mm-hmm. that. You know we need to set uh, define some terms here. So I have found mm-hmm. that a lot of people call stuff culture that I wouldn't consider culture, or in the very least, I would call it a subculture of a mm-hmm. culture. And so, but how mm-hmm. do you define culture? So in short, culture is our way of being. Um, it's literally who we are. I mean, that's, that's the simplest definition I have. And when of culture. you say we, who, who are we talking about? Who is this we? African people. Okay, that narrows it down. Yeah, African. Yep. Uh, African people, black people. Uh, we talk about culture. We're talking about. If you want to get into subcultures, we're talking about black people within the United States. Um. Look, you're talking about black culture, black culture within the United States, uh, how we relate to one another, uh, mm-hmm. our ways, our norms, our codes, um, our relationships, how we identify. Like all of that stuff is culture. Uh, music falls into culture. I mean, it's part of the larger culture, of course, but uh, music is very important. Uh, music is pretty much, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a, if you could think of the news, like music literally, it, it, it serves as the news for reporting what's going on within our culture. And it lets us know whether our culture is healthy or whether it's sick. Um, I think uh, was it Nina Simone said it the best. Uh, I think she said that the artist's job is to report the times that are basically reflect the times, uh, to speak on the times, to speak on what's going on. Uh, Gil Scott Heron did the same thing. A lot of our artists back in the day they did the same thing. Uh, Marvin, Marvin Gaye did the same thing. Teddy Pendergrass did the same thing. A lot of our artists, you talk about the Temptations, the OJs, all of these fabulous groups, they use their art to talk about uh, what was going on in our communities, what was going on with us as far as asking people, uh, and solutions, problems, what we needed to get back to, 
all of those sorts of subjects. So now uh, you have music that, and I hear some of these some of these new rappers terming it culture, saying that they are now the, uh, I guess the, the uh, how can I put it, I guess the agents of our culture, uh, for, for lack of a better word. But none of the stuff that they're talking about is our culture innately because your culture is supposed to nutrify you. Um, it's supposed to be healthy. It's supposed to feed you. Um, it's supposed to be what you pass down to the kids in terms of what they're supposed to be doing, what the norms are, you know, what the institutions are in your community. And it was never a norm for us, and it's no part of African culture for us to be in words and be words and for us to define each other as such. Um, murdering each other is not part of black culture or African culture. Uh, running, for lack of a better term, uh, gang raping our women is not part of black or African culture. Uh, doing drugs, being consumers, being a hyper-materialist, none of that stuff is part of black culture. It's not healthy. So these are the things that are toxifying us that are being passed off as culture through music that we don't own. Now, you know, when it, and I'm glad that you went there in defining the terms that you were be discussing in your book so people understand you, because I found that a lot of people, they use words and they use definitions that I'm like, I don't know where you got that definition from, but, you know, I speak English, so I go to the dictionary and yes, it's a Western dictionary. Yes, white men wrote it, but that's the language that we're speaking right now. And so in mm-hmm. order for us to be on the same page, we got to be working somewhat off of the same definition. Because if you're using mm-hmm. a word and, and, and I have a different, different, a def, different definition than the way you're using that word, then we're not, we not going to connect intellectually. So for me, it's even simpler. The arts... And it applies to any group. So that's why I was asking, who is this we? Because, you know, Japanese mm-hmm. had a own Japanese Americans, Japanese had a culture. Ethiopians, even within the black community, you know, you have, have different cultures and practices. You know, the Caribbeans, how they develop, mm-hmm. you know, their own cultures and practice. Um, but culture, the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, mm-hmm. or other social group. And, and one of the uh, terms they say, use as an example, is Caribbean culture or civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Mm-hmm. I, if if a gangster rapper was to come up to me, and I don't know the different terms they use because I heard this mumble rappers where they not even saying words, they mumbling. You know? Right. And so how how is that of high intellectual achievement? I mean, how much intellect did it take for me to just just say make some noise and put it to some beat and, and then put the noise in a loop. You understand what I'm saying, right? Uh, how this is when you mention the temptations, when you mention Marvin Gaye, when you you're talking about serious artists who were trained. Do you know what they had to go through? Not just <laughs> in terms of knowing the music, but etiquette, because etiquette is mm-hmm. a part of, of culture. And so mm-hmm. and so. Hey, when you just and it's no disrespect, and I don't mean to dehumanize or be at, say that people who have fallen in that trap of the industry, I'm not your adversary, mm-hmm. but when they just snatch you up out the hood because 
or something they see that you like and you're pushing this negative negative uh, message, I don't call that culture. I, I don't call right. it that. No, I don't either. Um, and it's it's kind of unfortunate. I, I don't blame the kids because I understand, number one, again, capitalism. And I understand, I mean, the basics and that the rich can always get the poor to do whatever they want the poor to do. Um, the, the, the poor will always be manipulated. They'll always be exploited because the poor always want to be like the rich. They want to have what the rich has. And so if you're talking about poor kids or kids that come from poor families or poor communities, and you're giving them $250,000 to mumble on the microphone and say all sorts of obscenities, uh, what's going to stop that kid from doing that if it's going to get his mom a house or if it's going to get him two or three cars or a couple of chains? Um, But we've had several artists that talked about, I mean, what's going on with hip-hop. We don't own it, number one. Uh, The record industry is pretty much owned by Europeans. Um, It is owned by Europeans. And so right now you have the dumbing down of our culture. And it just didn't start with the music because as an educator, I see it in the schools, and I was in these schools as they literally peeled the uh, vocational programs and the arts programs out of the buildings. Um, They took the instruments, um, threw them in the trash or did whatever they did with them. So the kids no longer had access to music or real music. Um, We had that in school. And we also had the connection because our parents were still listening to that music. And so age group, for the most part, most of our childhood was synthesized music. It wasn't instrumentation. It was synthesizers. And so if you're talking about these kids now, they don't even know what most of these kids, they probably couldn't even name two or three instruments. Like, literally, they couldn't identify them. And so if you're talking about kids that are mumbling over a beat track, um, and you're talking about most of their artists are literally going to a studio and they have all of these little voice boxes that can alter and augment their voices and make it sound like they can sing. I mean, this is just pretty much, it's almost like it's a natural, uh, I don't even want to call it progression, but re- regression of the culture. Uh, what's going on right now? So it's not necessarily on the kids. It's what's being it's because it's what's been contrived as a demand. Uh, like they're, they're literally going to YouTube and they're finding the most ignorant music, uh, the most debasing music, the most disrespectful music. And I use the word music loosely. And they're signing these kids to contracts. And again, you have poor kids that never had anything. And we're selling materialism and consumerism to the kids before they even have money. They're already thirsty for the money so they can get the things they can never afford. And that goes for a lot of us on our adults, too. So, you know, the kids are sometimes more impressionable. Again, That's kind of what um, we're dealing with. You know, going back to something you said earlier, uh, you said we don't, I think you said we don't own it. Didn't you utter mm-hmm. those words? Didn't you say we, didn't, we don't own it when we talk in commercial yes. And so yep. I had thought before the program and I was like let me make a mental note to uh, ask Bernard about you know do we own it and let me tell you where my mind was going the foundation Mm -hmm. of hip hop was what records right started records Uh, they would use other records and find a beat called the break or whatever it was called back then they find the break the instrumental part and then you know they had these very long instrumentals at the same time, it might be two or three minutes long on some records. And so DJs started isolating those beats and then brothers started laying down uh, raps on top of it, their own lyrics mm-hmm. on top of that. So yep. since it was based off of these records, again, who do these records belong to but these labels? The only time it would be black owned is in the case of Motown. 
from back in the day because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's heavily sampled. But now they sampling everything, rock, just from all across all kind of uh, uh, genres or getting sound bites. Sometimes it's not even the music. It's just sound bites being, being looped mm-hmm. over and over. And, and so, but I was saying that, damn, no one, I know why the industry jumped on hip hop early and saw money to be made because hell, they probably getting, they getting a cut any damn way because it's sampling music that they own the rights to that the artists, a lot of times we know back, especially old school artists, they don't own their masters. And so them royalties is being paid to the company. You know what I'm saying? So it's like they, from the beginning, they had part ownership of hip hop unbeknownst to the founders of hip hop. And then now they just totally own it. I mean, you control all the means of production, the means of the distribution, and radio airplay. So mm-hmm. is it ours or is it theirs? And 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 they just you know let us be a part of it. <laughs> just like every music there. It's a deep thought on, on um and a lot to unpack in there. But I'm like from the jump though they they really own it. They own it. Yeah, and all the shots. Yeah, and that, but that's the nature of our existence in this country. If you look at it on a macro level, I mean, whether you're a teacher in a public school, uh, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a fire officer, whether you're a, a black judge, whether you're a black president, a black governor, uh, you still don't necessarily have power. You just have influence. And so we got to understand the, the difference between influence and power. Jay-Z has influence. He doesn't have power. Uh, Puffy Great. has influence. He doesn't have power. Great point. Um, and so if you're talking about ownership, I mean, the funny thing about the uh, the uh, golden age of hip-hop, and even in the years leading up to it, the producers were so clever. We talk about the premieres. Uh, De La Soul's DJ. I want to say it was Prince Paul. Uh, whoever their producer was, it's, it's skipping my brain right now, but Brand Nubian. Uh, sometimes they would loop the song, but sometimes they would they would cut it so cleverly that it was indistinguishable to somebody that you know, unless you knew the music, you know what I mean, outright, uh, especially premiere. So he would take music. Wu Tang was probably the best arisen, and they would take music from like way, 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 way back, and they, one song might include like ten different samples. And so at that time, they were making all the money. They didn't have to pay too many people anything because nobody could really identify what they were using. But gradually, mm. the corporations that you, you just spoke to that owned all of that music, they got hip to it. And like you just said, I mean, even when our musicians were actually making the music back in the day, they were still getting pennies on the dollar. And so now mm. that the radio stations are starting to go after rappers for, for royalties or whatever, they're getting, they're, they're getting more money. And the artists or whoever that actually made the music, they're still getting their little pennies. But the industry, like you just said, they're still getting most of that money. So the only people and the only artists that are really using samples now, those artists that are already plugged, like the Jay-Zs and the Puffies yeah. that have record companies that are pretty much giving them the money to uh, to pay those artists for those royalties or whatever. Uh, you don't have kids coming off of YouTube that are using royalties, you know what I mean? Unless they're like, they come out and they just are automatically hooked up with a record company because those royalties cost money. I mean, that's a half-day contract. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're literally, they're putting together teams of producers that are coming up with these little very, very shallow tracks that they're regurgitating over and over again. 
Like it's literally the same type of track. Regurgitate. They might add a a kick here, a snare there, uh, maybe a little bit of horn there, but all of the music pretty much sound the same. And so nobody has to pay royalties anymore. But you pretty much have garbage now. They're not playing any instruments. So what are they listening to? I mean, there's really no musical elements. So they don't have music anymore. They don't have lyrics anymore. I mean, what's going on? Now I'm not gonna say all of them because we do have some underground artists like Toby uh, mm-hmm. that are actually doing some good things. Um, I actually enjoy his music. Uh, Toby, and it's a couple of others that I listen to uh, lately that are still making some good music, but of course, they're not getting played on the radio. Mm. Well, we, speaking of the radio, we do need to take a station identification break, a, a short uh, promo, and we'll play that on. Then we'll come back on the other side and we'll continue to speak with Mr. Bernard Creamer Jr. Again, he's the author of Who Stole the Soul? The weaponization of hip hop, a historical and sociological perspective, and that book is available on Amazon. Um, you can get it in paperback as well as the Amazon Kindle. So stay tuned. It's on our website too. And what's the uh, website? The website's s t a t u s k n o dot com. Status no k n o dot com. All right. All right, thanks for that. And we'll be right back yes, on the other side. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News on the Black Talk Radio Network. I want to share something with you. Like the masses, I was in awe when I first laid eyes on all the things you are. I heard that speech. I knew we make noise. I just thought it'd be in the streets. The Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a black messiah. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. What do you want? Get close to Hampton. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Neutralize him by any means necessary. America's on fire right now. And until that fire is extinguished, nothing else means a damn thing. Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't tell me it was gonna be like this. These ain't no terrorists. We got a rat, man. Does anybody else know about me? No one knows your identity. Are you sure? We educate, we nurture, we feed, and we bobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. When I dedicated my life to people, I dedicated my life. You get to go up there and talk about dying a revolutionary death. Because you don't have another person growing inside your body. Anyway, there's people. There's power. 
Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. And welcome back to Black Talk Radio News. Scotty Reed and on this mic from behind the lines, enemy lines of USA Inc. Uh, getting a little tongue-tied, as I stated. I'm kind of hoarse right now after attending a free speech uh, protest in Gaston County. Remember, all politics is local. Uh, you did hear Judas and the Black Messiah trailer um, right when we first went to break. For those that was wondering what y'all was listening to, I can't wait for that film. What about you, Bernard? Are you going to check out? I'm Judas looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. That's, of course, being a Chicago brother and, of course, being a lover of uh, the pro-black movement, the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton, um, I just hope they do that brother right. <laughs> Uh, I hope the movie is done correctly, but I'm definitely uh, looking forward to it coming up. I know uh, Fred Hampton Jr., his son, um, I've seen him out doing some promos for the movie and and what have you. He was shooting some stuff or live streaming on Facebook. He was taking some pictures for the promo at the old house, at the house where this occurred at. So they must Mm -hmm. be right if he got the family, you know what I'm saying? Uh, helping I'd say promote. so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't so, know he was doing promotion for it. That's good to hear. Now, see, the the reason I think that's key to the conversation that we having is because, you know, one of the groups we haven't mentioned during the golden eras or what I consider the golden era of hip-hop was X-Clan. And so, you know, everybody mm-hmm. know Public Enemy, but then you had X-Clan too. And also, we got to talk about KRS-One. And see, mm-hmm. it was public enemy that I learned about black, I mean, excuse me, about Malcolm X and read his mm-hmm. his uh, biography while I was in the United States Army. And it was mm-hmm. to read about Malcolm X and then hearing about these other brothers in hip-hop being, you know, their names being mentioned in the lyrics and hip-hop, I started, you know, finding out more information about them. I eventually came to the Black Panther Party and learned none of this stuff that was going to be taught to me in school or by this white-dominated society. It's just not part of their education, you know, uh, right. a culture uh, in this country. So I believe that the powers that be that control hip-hop, control the radio airwaves, 
thought that that was going to be a problem for the same reason they thought that Fred Hampton was a problem. And but you know mm-hmm. you can't really just assassinate assassinate music. So what do you do? You infiltrate it just like how the Panthers was destroyed. You infiltrate it, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. you destroy it from within. Do you think that's a good analogy for what has happened to hip hop? That's a great analogy for what's happened. Um, and it happened not just with hip-hop, but it happened with uh, rhythm and blues, with rock and roll. Uh, it happened with jazz and all the other art forms that we created uh, organically, um, and they sought to profit from. Um, our artists were very astute. They were using all of those art forms to deliver potent messages to us. It didn't just start with hip-hop. And so they knew that, number one, they could make profit selling it back to us, um, whether they had co-opted it and changed it over or not. Um, according to according to us, well, according to them, it was still our music. And so gradually, I mean, we just accepted it because that's all that was being supplied to us. You know, just like now, that's all that's being supplied to our kids is this drill music and this murder music, um, this disrespect uh, women music. If you were supplying the kids, if nine out of the ten songs were conscious music on the radio, and that's all the kids had to choose from, they would love some conscious music. I mean, it's that simple. So, yeah, they definitely co-opted what was being supplied, and uh, they did what they could do to uh, pretty much subdue the messages and dumb it down. And so we're living the results of that stuff now. You know, you were just talking about the children and the impact that is having on the children. You have a chapter in your book talking about conditioning. And and mm-hmm. though from my own research, I know about studies that have been done. You know, you got um, European-dominated groups and uh, nonprofits out there that's concerned about the sexualization of little girls, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. especially little white girls in, in mm-hmm. these uh, what you might call teen dramas and they having sex and smoking. And, and so when they talk about the studies that show this does influence the behavior of the children who consume it. And, you know, again, you're a teacher and, you know, I took note that you said you, you saw firsthand the impact, you know, that, that, it, that it's having. So what, it, what, what's in chapter 16 for the people? What, what are you getting at when you talk about the conditioning? Well, the conditioning chapter, I mean, I'm pretty much talking about, in short, um, the parameters uh, that are put in place to basically create what we have today. I mean, you have to create, if you're talking about wiping a, a people off the planet, and if you're talking about creating the conditions that make it okay to wipe a people off the planet, you have to de- dehumanize those people. Um, you have to make those people or render those people unpalatable to others. Um, you have to make those people seem like they're all criminals. Uh, you have to make it seem like their women have no value. Uh, you have to make it seem like their men are all pretty much demons. Um, you have to demonize them. Uh, I already said dehumanize them, but once you have successfully successfully uh, projected or put out images and the depictions of uh, these people as being less than, uh, it's easier to pretty much do whatever you want to do to them. So if you're talking about the conditions that prepare black people for mass incarceration, I mean, that goes, that happened through the media. Um, if you look at all of the media, whether it's TV, whether it's the movies, whether it's the music, if you dehumanize black people and you devalue the women, uh, it's easy to lock them up because no one really cares about people that are seen as criminals anyway. Um, if black women are disappearing by the thousands or by the hundreds off of this planet, they're coming up missing. 
or if you have Sandra Bland that are being lynched in jail or Corey Gaines that are being murdered in their apartments, um, the story can pretty much be brushed under the rug in two or three weeks because it was just a black woman who has no value anyway. And according to American media, uh, she's just a, a prostitute anyway. Um, she's just some over-sexualized harlot. Uh, she's just some hyper-aggressive woman that's probably going to go out and beat up another woman anyway. So you have to set up conditions or condition the people to be exterminated before you can exterminate them. And I tied that conditioning in to what was done to the, uh, to the Jews just prior, prior to World War II uh, with Hitler and his uh, final solution and him having a whole propaganda arm in his military, his SS troops, that dealt with propagandizing the Jews and pretty much prepping them or priming them to be eliminated. They had to be conditioned. You had to prepare. You had to set up conditions that made it okay to eliminate six million Jews. Speech. Um, what was what was the group speech was with? Arrested Development. Arrested Development. Uh, yeah, I actually interviewed the brothers some years back, man. This was like in when I first got started on online radio. Um, but I, he was like a Ron Paul supporter, and so it was a basically a political interview. But um, speech. Still is putting out stuff. I mean, he has a YouTube channel, and I don't know if you heard of the docu series that he came out with. I think it's three parts, um, and mm. it's called The New Factory. So when you were just talking about, you know, conditioning is to create something, and I'm like, well, what are they creating? And speech pops into my mind, the nigga factory. Mm-hmm. Would you yeah, talk about that word in terms of our self-identification? Um, I just met with a brother. It's funny, yo, we're talking about this. Um, but the last piece of our conversation is we're trying to do some things out here in D.C. Uh, with these youth. And he had never heard anybody break down, you know, the like how long it took for us to look at each other as N-words. Uh, if I can say niggas. If we, how long it took for us to start calling each other niggas um, in mass? Because, I mean, we were, we've always been doing it here and there. Like even on the plantation, somebody might refer to another Black person was a nigga in a derogatory fashion, uh, similar to the way the white man used it. Was, it was always derogatory. You know, you had these apologists yeah. that say, oh, oh, it's a term of endearment. We're going to change the nah. definition. Again, there we nah. go with words and definitions. Yep, that's how the apologist uh, way of putting it. For me, that's just a cop-out, because I heard Ice Cube say that on a uh, Bill Maher show. Uh, I think that was a couple of years ago. Uh, that was him that was basically putting that out there talking about it's all word now. And we redefine the word. You can't redefine the word. The word means what it means. And the word is rooted in what it was rooted in. And so basically just say that you can't, you don't have it within you or the fortitude to stop using the word. Just say that. Or just say that you see black people as niggas. Just say that. But don't say that you can redefine the word. You, only, you see it as a term of endearment because as a black man, as an African, I prefer not to be called a nigger by anybody, black or white, by anybody. Um, I'm not a nigga. I would re- I'd rather be called an African. And I think once we get to that point where we're defining ourselves in terms of who we really are um, and what our identity is rooted in, I think we'll start to behave a little bit better and we'll start to relate to one another a little bit better. But we don't understand how we're feeding our subconscious filth by calling each other N-words. Um, most of the negative behaviors that we partake in, uh, not we, uh, but I'll just say the fringes of our culture or the fringes of our people. We talk about murderers. Uh, black people that are murdering each other. If you get ready to kill another black person, the thing out your mouth is nigga. I'm going to kill that nigga. I'm about to kill that nigga. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to kill that African or I'm going to kill that brother or I'm going to kill my family or I'm going to kill my cousin. You say niggas. 
So we we do know that that word subconsciously has a negative connotation to it, but it's just a matter of us owning and acknowledging that. It's not, you know, like Ice Cube did pretty much uh, being an apologist for the word or the use of it. That's weak. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned earlier about um, old boy sitting down, Steve Harvey, with uh, jumping on that Trump train. Uh, so did Ice Cube. <laughs> so did Ice Cube. Wow. Um, yeah. you know, I think we gotta. I think we gotta. We gotta get back, like you were saying, to that 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 mindset of James Baldwin and and saying, "I'm not your nigga." Just like he said, mm-hmm. I'm not the Negro. That's what needs to be said, you know, as a community to these record labels and these radio stations is that I'm not your nigga. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm not going to, I don't want you to give away too much from your book, but basically, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking about it throughout this conversation, but who stole the soul, Bernard? You don't tell us who stole the soul. <laughs> you know who stole it. You already called it. <laughs> uh, the soul was stolen by those that pretty much own it, uh, those that own it, those that make the, pro- the real profits from it, those that pay the people that that puppet this nonsense. Those are the those are the individuals that stole the soul. The Columbia's, the Sony's, the Interscopes. And we and when we say soul, I mean we do have to break it down for the people. Um, are, are we talking about the soul music, you know, R&B? I think, you know, it's all of above me personally, but I mean, it's like... Man, you want me to break it down, break it down? Uh, we yeah, talking about they, who stole the soul. I break the word soul down the sun. Are they talking about sun? The, the soul food, the light that feeds us, what nutrifies us. And so if you're talking about soul, that's what you're talking about, the original Soul, if you want to go back to Latin derivatives and all of that business, I mean, we're talking about the sun. The sun feeds us. If you're talking about soul, that's what feeds us. I mean, that's generally what, that's what we operate off of. That's our motor. That's our fuel. Uh, unfortunately, it was soul music, which was supposed to do that, but we, we ain't going to talk about soul music. I mean, soul food. I'm sorry. We ain't going to talk about soul food. Uh, the soulful music, it feeds your soul. Uh, soul music, it feeds your soul. Hip-hop used to feed our souls, but right now it's poisoning it. So there is no soul in the music that's being offered to our kids. I would agree. I, I would call them right now that they're destroying souls, man. I mean, yeah. you're destroying souls. You're destroying the souls of young people, man, and, and children. When you talk about the murders, a lot of us, you know, that's like that's like a taboo subject. That's almost like talking about incest or something, man. You know, <laughs> talking about Intra-community violence is what I call it. You know, these races come up with this term black-on-black crime. I mean, hell, it's it's white-on-white crime. It's Asian-on-Asian crime because most crime Mm -hmm. is a crime of opportunity in those around you. Um, Proximity. Yeah, proximity. That's the word um, that that I was looking for. Um, But listen, we do got to get ready to wrap it up, man. Uh, We got a couple of minutes left. And mm-hmm. what would what would be your parting thoughts with the listeners, man? How can this book, how can your book, the Who Stole the Soul, the Weaponization of Hip Hop, a historical and sociological perspective? It, it, listen, people, it's got a lot of chapters in here. He really, you know, dives in into this subject. But 
you know, what what benefit would you say a reader would get from from your book? Uh, definitely some good stuff and definitely an understanding of what the culture of hip-hop entails, what it is, the history of hip-hop. Um, and for me um, and for the, for the readers, I would like them to understand that we are at war. You know, I, I put everything in the context of war. Um, and it's pretty much, I mean, we're dealing with the, capitalism is the ammunition that they use against us. And so we have to understand how capitalism works. We have to understand how capitalism is used to exploit and manipulate us. And if we're talking about our music, which is literally it's our music, it's our culture, um, it's what feeds us, feeds us. We have to understand that when other entities own our culture, uh, what they give back to us is not necessarily going to be something that's going to be feeding us. And so we're dealing with the manifestations of what they're feeding us in some retarded, bastardized version of what our culture is or what our culture was. And so I just want us to understand everything in the context of war and what we have to do in terms of solutions to address this. And one of the main things we have to do is to empower ourselves, but especially empower our youth to understand what we're dealing with in terms of media. Who stole the soul, the weaponization of hip hop, a historical and sociological perspective by our guest tonight, Bernard Creamer Jr. Sir, I want to say to you in parting, you know, take care of yourself. Um, during, especially yes, during this pandemic, man, you know, black people and especially black men, you know, we catch it. We catch it from all sides, man. When you look mm-hmm. at, you know, different metrics and what have you, we are disproportionately always suffering. And, you know, it, telling my brothers out there and my sisters, really take care of yourself because a lot of us is leaving this, leaving this plane man. of existence. And, and, and a lot of us are, are you need it. We need soldiers yes, like sir. you, Creamer Jr. So you take care of yourself. And likewise with yourself. We need you as well, man. And thank you for providing this uh, very necessary platform. All right. Peace and blessings to you, bro. Peace to you, brother. Be safe. All right. So that again was Mr. Bernard Creamer Jr., who stole the soul, the weaponization of hip hop, a historical and sociological perspective i would like to ask you to please support the production of independent black media touching upon subjects that a lot of media won't touch um and you can do that by making a tax deductible donation to the black talk media project the black talk radio network.com is a platform that is a project of the black talk media project so Make a tax-deductible donation. Any amount will help, and you will help uh, support the creation of black media and its elevation. Peace and blessings to all. Now I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses.